welcome to the Raisana podcast from the Observer Research Foundation. In this episode, Dhruva Jayashankar, Director of ORSUS Initiative, is joined by Mrityesh Shake, President of the Cyber Peace Institute and a member of ORF's Global Advisory Board. They discuss the opportunities and challenges we face as a digital collective and the impact of emerging technologies on our tech futures. I, I want to start off on a somewhat more personal note. Um, how did you, uh, as a MEP, as a member of European Parliament, become so interested in technology? And what prompted you to become what some have called Europe's most wired politician and, and then subsequently head up the Cyber Policy Center at Stanford? Yeah, so I've always been very curious about where change comes from. And I studied new media at the University of Amsterdam. So I, I was always following technological developments and innovations but uh, what really sparked a lot of my interest and also concerns was that in the summer that I first got elected, which was 2009, uh, I could very clearly see both the upsides and the downsides of new technology. So the upside was that, that I, as a complete outsider in politics, was able to use social media platforms to engage with people and to make my voice heard uh, without any prior sort of media profile or access or whatnot. I was 29 and 30 when I was campaigning. So that was really sort of the key to um, getting a foot between the door of the establishment of of politics um, in my country. But then the downside became uh, so strikingly clear when I was following the elections that were happening in the same summer, but in, in the Islamic Republic of Iran, where young people also wanted to use social media and their mobile phones to organize, um, document and share human rights abuses when the government cracked down on peaceful demonstrations very, very brutally. Uh, and where it turned out that actually European companies were exporting uh, monitoring systems over the um, mobile networks, which were abused for uh, surveillance of students and journalists and opposition figures in Iran. And so, you know, in 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 a few months, uh, I was able to experience and, and observe the spectrum of the upside and the downside. And so I wanted to make sure that as a member of European Parliament, um, I did what I could to get the to get the approach right and to put human rights and democracy and the rule of law first and not to allow technology or private governance to dictate where we take the technology. Mm-hmm. So, so looking back, I mean, you mentioned the Iran example, but looking back over the past three decades, you know, there was a great deal of optimism. I remember around the Arab Spring, uh, around the the, the sort of uh, green revolutions or um, uh, the colored revolutions, uh, that that the internet was going to be this great globalizing force in the world, and uh, you know it, it would make the world more cosmopolitan and and sort of flatten the earth in a way. But today we see, you know, I think there's a much more pessimistic view about about emerging technologies and uh, you know you know whether it's a product of China's great firewall or differences between the U.S. and Europe even over privacy. Was was this outcome inevitable, do you think, or could it have been avoided um, had different decisions been made in the past? Well, beginning with the first part of your question, I think that the optimism and the promise of democracy going viral with mobile phones and internet connectivity was always really more coming from Silicon Valley than from the brave activists on the streets of Cairo or Tunis or Damascus themselves, because I think they knew very well what kind of a system they were up against and that uh, just having a phone in your hand and access to a social media platform did not itself defy bullets and prison sentences and torture. So I think 
I think it was naive to think that um, technology could make democracy go viral without very deliberate governing for it, safeguarding of it, ensuring accountability, you know, uh, really having it being part and parcel of a more strategic foreign policy agenda. And I do think it could have been different. I think um, with more deliberate attention and uh, policies, putting universal human rights first, both at home and in the foreign policy, particularly from the United States side, which had such a competitive advantage with, you know, the strength of Silicon Valley and the promise of Silicon Valley that indeed big opportunities were lost. And I also look to Europe there because traditionally, basically since World War II, Americans and Europeans have been at the helm of making sure that there was an international rules-based order. And, you know, it, it ensured fairness, benchmarks, um, accountability when, when there would be violation of international law or international institutions that could uphold structures and, and corporations in a way that um, has been extremely important to, to build, you know, this, this rules-based order. And in an inexplicable way, I would say, uh, that agenda was dropped when it came to the digital ecosystem. And so there have not been significant efforts to ensure that this rules-based international order or the rule of law, for that matter, were the guiding principles in assessing how to deal with technology and also how to rein it in where appropriate. Mm -hmm. uh, and therefore, we see uh, largely privatized governance of these new technologies or these social media platforms. They're not all that new anymore, but, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the technologies that are increasingly um, in the hands of very, very powerful companies, a handful of them, uh, as one sort of model, the privatized governance model, and uh, on the other hand, an authoritarian governance model. And what has been crowded out or eroded or basically neglected is a democratic governance model. And I think that that is the crux of the problem that has to urgently be solved. Do you think Europe is partly filling that gap? Uh, I mean, you know, with, with the with the you know increasing emphasis on privacy and and you know has has very successfully at least put out a model that has now been implemented at least. Uh, do you think that that's in some ways presents a third way between a sort of authoritarian governance model and a privatized governance model that the United States is championing? Yeah, so I think there's a, an effort to do so through, for example, data protection rules. But mm -hmm. one step in the right direction does not build a model yet, mm -hmm. you know? So I do think that there is thinking and uh, ambition in the right direction in Europe, but um, it has to be implemented much more forcefully, which means dedicating more resources and especially political capital. And I think that that's where there, there are a number of challenges. Um, and also in bringing together a couple of different aspects of what is going on. So there is a focus on balancing, let's say, economic interests and fundamental rights. But there is much less of a focus on Europe's role in the world, its geopolitical power or the lack thereof. And, for example, how technology and artificial intelligence have a deep impact on national security issues. And you can see clear tensions in how Europe is, is set up so far. So uh, if you recall the whole controversy and all the questions about how to deal with Huawei, the, the mm -hmm. Chinese um, 5G and network company, there we saw that essentially... All 27 member states of the EU could make their own uh, conclusions and, and their own considerations along national security exceptions, which, you know, any country can, um, can ban foreign direct investment or entering into the market of a specific company or service 
on the basis of national security, but national security policies are not harmonized in Europe. And so you have a tension, a friction between the promise of a single market, the promise of a digital single market, and national security exemptions. So I think there has to be much more of an integrated vision uh, between economic interests, security interests, human rights concerns, um, and uh, the whole you know technology ecosystem. Because nowhere else do we see such a melting of human rights, security, and economic concerns as we do in the sort of technological architecture that is being built by private companies right now. Mm -hmm. And where authoritarian states have much more of a vision of how they want to instrumentalize that technology and their companies for their own sort of governance agenda. And uh, on the other end of that, we see democracies leaving much of a vacuum either to the market or to uh, the global powers that be. You know, there's a lot of talk right now. I mean, you mentioned Huawei, but but generally about China's tech, you know technological policy. One of the ways it seems the conversation has really changed over the last decade is China didn't feature very prominently as a setter of standards or, or, or norms, and and as a, as a, as a global player generally in the tech sector uh, ten years ago, but today it very much is, and is in some ways you know in, in India where I'm from, the the, the uh, banning of Chinese apps has been a sort of major. Uh, major step uh, that it's taken, and and the United States, of course, and and others are now contemplating similar steps. Do you think you know there was uh, an opportunity earlier for um, to engage with China, given that it had basically set up a great firewall, it had it had stopped uh, Western and and techn- technological companies from operating uh, to the same degree? Do you think there was an opportunity to negotiate the terms of engagement earlier, uh, or is is it better better late than never? If, if well, I think maybe both are true. I do think if earlier on the political weight and the economic weight of, let's say, the European countries, the EU and um, the United States, and hopefully with like-minded uh, allies, would have been joined in uh, putting some clear boundaries on what is and is not acceptable from uh, China's side or from Chinese companies' side, it could have had a big impact. But Rather than than having a sort of strategy vis-a-vis China, there was a lot of wishful thinking about China developing into a democracy, a market economy, and that didn't materialize. And and in fact, I don't think it's it's been much of a secret of where China really wanted to go. And until this day, we see uh, a big schism between what politicians are waking up to and increasingly putting forward as a, a very strong agenda, especially in the US, you know, where Democrats and Republicans seem to agree on one thing, which is the, the challenge and the threat coming from China. Uh, but companies are still uh, following the gold rush. You know, mm-hmm. um, They don't seem hindered or limited in any kind of um, per- pursuing of their profit and growth goals in China, uh, not hindered by human rights violations, not hindered by slave labor of Uyghur minorities. And that is, in fact, shocking. And it's also a consequence of a lack of, of um, implementation of uh, democracy's own principles and rules. I mean, uh, there was recently a revelation that of the uh, textile retail, significant brands have sweatshops mm-hmm. of um, uh, Uyghur minorities that are held in captivity and that are apparently producing clothes that you know we can purchase for high prices in our own stores. That's a problem. It's it's facilitating a system, and and those are very tangible examples. But I think we can see it much more in 
you know, having allowed to create dependency on some suppliers, um, not seeing any fairness or accountability or oversight or transparency in a lot of the uh, supply chains and a lot of the practices that we see in the in the um, business sector in, in China, where there's very, very clearly a lot of close relations with the government. I mean, um, I think there has been naivety for too long, but uh, as you mentioned, to rebalance and to um, wake up and have a more integrated strategy vis-a-vis -vis China, it's better late than ever. So you, know, you sit in a very interesting position at, at Stanford, I mean, in, in Palo Alto, which is sort of in, in some ways, it gives you an opportunity to be a sort of interface between Silicon Valley, the, the private sector there, and and the public policy space. Do you see a sort of receptivity? Do you feel that there is a receptivity? Uh, is the conversation, is there a possibility of the conversation changing between the private sector and, and the public policy space and, and closer harmonization? You know, I always look at where possibilities are. And I think there is a lot of momentum uh, not only in California, uh, in Sacramento on the state level, but increasingly on the, the federal level in, in the U.S. itself. Mm. Anywhere from antitrust, we've seen the hearings, we see investigations by attorneys general of, of 47 states in a company like Google for anti-competitive practices. There is a lot of discussion about disinformation, especially in light of the pandemic and you know how how lies online can lead to dead people. I mean, it's mm. it's no longer a sort of you know, discussion about is the earth flat and does it matter if somebody claims something, you know, evidently untrue, um, the harms and also the agendas behind disinformation should not be underestimated. And I think that there is a catching up on the American side where in Europe there had been deeper concerns about, you know, how the power of big companies, which is, is often unchecked, can lead to a variety of harms, not only economic harms in the antitrust realm or in the inequality and lack of taxation realm, but also societal harms, uh, public health harms, human rights harms. And um, what I hope is that this momentum will lead to solutions that are anchored in the rule of law and democracy, not in sort of quick fixes, which sometimes lead to the medicine being worse than the, than the disease, right? Mm -hmm. So it's still very important to uh, keep, keep a close pulse of what is going on so that indeed human rights, um, the rule of law are the, the guiding principles in the solutions that are sought and, and not just to sort of do something or, um, you know, if, if my opponent says A, then I'm going to say B, which we sometimes see in a deeply polarized political landscape in, in the U.S. Um, there's a lot that can be done. Um, I also am optimistic about what is happening in, in Brussels between a data strategy, an AI strategy, a digital service act. I think there's a lot on the table. Uh, and I hope that we can continue to find ways to work together with like-minded mm -hmm. actors. And that certainly, and I've said this many times before, includes India, which I believe will be crucial for the future of democracy in the sense that, you know, whether India itself remains true to its, its democratic promise and how it will act uh, geopolitically and in the space of, of technology governance is going to be crucial. Um, and, and I'm hoping and I'm making the case for uh, more uh, coordination and, and coalition building between democracies in this space so that democratic nations will, will join together and develop a democratic governance model for technology mm -hmm. uh, as a counterweight to the authoritarian model, which is clearly, uh, you know, very far from our interests and values but also a counterweight to the um, excessive privatized governance that we see. 
Now, looking ahead, I mean, you, you mentioned uh, AI, AI policy as well, but what, what are some emerging technologies that you, you believe will have the greatest impacts on politics and policy? And there's a lot of hype around certain emerging technologies, machine learning, automation, quantum computing, 5G. But to what extent do you think this is justified? Um, well, I think too much hype is, is never healthy. I'm much more in favor of uh, evidence-based uh, mm. approach. But... Um, I do think that that some of the sort of new technologies have still not been dealt with appropriately. I think facial recognition systems are a big one, which we saw coming, and still there's huge vacuums in in the legislative approaches. You know, there's not protection of fundamental rights, even though with ubiquitous um, facial recognition systems deployed, clearly, you know, privacy and anonymity will die. Like that, those two cannot go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, the, the role of private companies also in uh, developing offensive cyber capabilities or uh, ever more aggressive hacking and surveillance systems is something to really watch for. So I think there's a whole spectrum of quote unquote new technologies and sometimes, you know, already present technologies that deserve more scrutiny. And from my point of view, if you start looking at both opportunities, risks, and governance questions through the lens of what does this mean for the rule of law and how do we preserve it? You know, how do we make sure that whatever the promise of this new technology is or whatever the challenge of this new technology is, that we make sure that human rights and the rule of law are not sort of eroded or disrupted. Mm -hmm. And for too long, I would say that there has been a tech-centric focus, almost a deterministic focus on what the technology was going to bring. Recall Mm -hmm. what we were just saying about the Arab Arab Spring, where people really thought that it was going to be inevitable that access to the internet was going to bring more more liberties. Well, you know, I can understand that that's an ambition, and I do believe that a lot of the internet pioneers actually had that dream. But um, to forget how much hard work, how many struggles uh, it took to get to where we are in terms of you know, uh, bridging the gap between the promise and the practice of equal treatment, of checks and balances, of democratic and and legal oversight, you know, of, of non-discrimination, of fair competition. A lot of the pillars of our open societies did not came out, come out of the blue. We've spent centuries to develop them. And the idea that, you know, technology would suddenly or instantly perfect that, I think w- was very naive. And so similarly, um, I don't want to believe that, you know, it's inevitable that China is going to be uh, the dominant force of uh, governing technology or that, you know, um, uh, some problems that are complicated can never be solved. I think Mm -hmm. we have to be um, deliberate and focused to get there and believe in our own agency and and not feel defeated before we've even began to try. Right. Uh, you know, finally, I, if you know, if one of the things I think you focused on a lot in your political career was sort of globalization and and sort of ensuring that it remained sort of healthy and and uh, if globalization is to be renewed, we're in the midst of a major coronavirus pandemic, in, including that's affecting the United States, Europe, India, other centers, other major economic centers. If it is to be renewed, uh, will a certain amount of uh, sort of regulatory harmonization be necessary, at least amongst the like-minded? countries, like-minded democracies, and what do you think remain the chief impediments to accomplishing that? Yeah, so I couldn't agree more that we need um, a democratic governance model of technology, and that requires like-minded nations globally, 
to work together much more deliberately, but also I would say like-minded actors could be big civil society organizations or private companies that are actually willing to make a choice and stand for certain principles, you know, because that's the legacy they came from. That That is the set of circumstances that allows them to be successful and to not be profitable at the expense of, of people's freedoms and, and lives, right? So I think that is an absolutely urgent agenda. Um, do I think it is likely now? Unfortunately, I worry that the pandemic and especially its economic fallout is going to lead to renewed nationalism and, and uh, I worry even uh, fascism. Um, so I think it's urgent. I think a global internet and globally operating tech companies that are so powerful require uh, a counterbalance in democratic uh, governance. But do I think it is likely? No, unfortunately, I think it's going to be an uphill battle. Mm. Well, on that sober note, thank you again for taking the time to share these insights. Uh, I think we covered a lot of ground in a very short conversation, but um, uh, uh, and uh, hope to uh, see a lot more uh, from you and, and your work out of uh, Stanford over the coming months and years. It's, it seems to be as important a time uh, to be doing work in this area, and we at ORF are hoping to expand our work on technology policy as well. So on that note, it leaves it to me to thank you, um, uh, Marisha Shaki, for that conversation. And um, thank you all for listening. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Raisina podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. And for further updates, follow us on our social media and our website.